influential people. And if you've read their lists, like I sometimes have, I'm sure you find yourself heartily agreeing with some of their picks and probably strongly disagreeing with other of their picks. So if you were writing the list, who would be your top 10? And here's a related question. If you were writing a feature article on the person you felt was the number one most influential person in the world, how would you begin? Well, today we start a three-month study in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's feature article on the life and the work of Jesus Christ, the person that Matthew believes is the most important and influential person in the world. And this morning we'll begin to see why Matthew puts forward Jesus as worthy of that distinction. And we'll see that Matthew begins his article, as we uh, just had read to us, in a way which seems unusual to us, with, with a, a genealogy. If you don't have... Oh, we did get the slides up. Okay. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the seat back in front of you. And we're on page 681 in Matthew chapter 1. In opening up to Matthew chapter 1 and coming across a list of all these names, William Barclay, the... Um, Biblical scholar reflects, it might seem to a modern reader that Matthew chooses an extraordinary way to begin his gospel. It might seem daunting to present right at the beginning a long list of names to wade through. But to a Jew, this was the most natural and the most interesting and indeed the most essential way to begin the story of any man's life. One equivalent of a genealogy for us today might be a family photo album. And if you open a family photo album, there's certain things you expect to see. Maybe first some old black and whites of grandma and grandpa in their younger years. Then uh, your parents in their younger years wearing funny out-of-date fashions and hairstyles, right? Maybe there are some dates next to the photos. Maybe there are some short descriptions of who is in the photos or where the photo was taken. Sometimes there are other important keepsakes besides photos, like ticket stubs from your parents' honeymoon, or maybe an invitation to your christening party, or a program from that sixth grade play when you were a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz. Well, Jews back in Matthew's day didn't have photo albums, but they had genealogies. And genealogies told who you were. They gave your credentials. They told whether you were really Jewish and, and whether you were uh, related to the ancient kings or the priests and so had some special distinction. They also gave your history. Hearing the names of, of ancient relatives recited in the genealogy would bring to mind stories that you'd know about that person, much like a picture in a photo album might do for us today. For the Jewish nation, genealogies about their uh, most important ancestors also brought to mind the story of God. And how God had been involved with these people in the past, working in their lives. One last fact about genealogies, and that is that just as we open a photo album and we, and we expect to find certain things there, so an ancient Jew expected to hear certain things when a genealogy was recited. And Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, which, uh, or, or with which he opens his feature article about Jesus, contains some of those predictable features and it also contains some unexpected surprises that you don't expect to find in a genealogy. So this morning, I want to help us take a closer look at this genealogy to get what Matthew is trying to tell us about Jesus. 
the person he believes is the most influential person in the world. Okay? First, a quick comic break. It's kind of fuzzy, but that's Adam and Eve there. And Adam says to Eve, what do you mean you're working on our genealogy? <laughs> All right, well, right up front, let's look at the most important thing that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is trying to tell us about Jesus. It's right there in verse 1, and it's there again in verse 16. It's that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this idea is so familiar to many of us that we just skip right over it. We think Christ is just Jesus' last name or something. Jesus Christ. But Christ isn't a name. It's a title. Christ in Greek or Messiah, the same thing in Hebrew, means literally anointed one or the one anointed king. For, or to be Christ means to be king. And not just any king. You see, the Jews were waiting for a particular king. A king that their prophets had foretold about, as was read earlier at the beginning when we lit the Advent candle. For to us, the prophet said, thinking off into the future, a son is born or a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Don't you long, like I long, for a leader, for a chief executive who will always lead his or her people with justice and righteousness. The Jews did, and their God had promised through the prophets that one day just such a leader would appear. A king, a Messiah, a Christ from the line of David to reign on David's throne. Ah, Now we're beginning to see why a genealogy might be important. Jesus, Matthew wants us to know, was a descendant of this David. And therefore, Jesus had the right credentials to be God's long-awaited king. So who was this guy, David? Well, David had been Israel's greatest king. He had unified the loosely connected tribes of Israel and formed them into a powerful nation, a nation which grew to preeminence in the, the region of Palestine under David's reign. In the process, David had defeated God's, or Israel's surrounding enemies and, and allowed Israel to enjoy peace and to prosper. Best of all, David was a man loved by God. He wasn't proud or pretentious. His greatness didn't go to his head like so many other rulers past and since. David didn't use his power to lord it over his subjects or to oppress them. Rather, David ruled with justice and with equity, with humility and with compassion. David had a deep and a courageous faith. His, his trust and, and love for God led him to, to fight and to defeat his fiercest enemy one day and then to write a poem about it the next day, all to the glory of God. He was the original Renaissance man and God loved him. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, we read that God had promised David that one of David's descendants would rule on his throne forever. And for years, the Jews had been waiting and longing through, through good times and more often through bad times. They'd been longing for this son of David, the one like his father David, to finally arise. And now, Matthew says, the Christ, the son of David, has finally come. 
Then Matthew goes on, not only is Jesus a son of David, he's also a son of Abraham. The Jewish people all traced their ancestry back to Abraham, and they were and are proud of it. They're children of Abraham. Because God had a special relationship with Abraham. God chose Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth and promised to be with him and to, to bless him, to be his God, to be Abraham's God, and, and Abraham and his children would be God's people. And God promised, most importantly, to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. And now Matthew says, through Jesus, one of those descendants, God is finally and fully going to bring that blessing to the whole world. So by the very first line that introduces this genealogy, we already learn a lot about Jesus and about why Matthew thinks he's so influential. He's Jesus Christ, or rather, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the King. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's a king with all the right credentials to be the kind of world leader that this world is longing for. And that God was longing and planning to send into the world. So fast forward for a minute to the end of Matthew's feature article about Jesus. It ends with Jesus the King in chapter 28 of Matthew. Sending out his 12 main followers and by extension all of his followers since. And saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the son of David after all. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. He's the son of Abraham after all. Come to bless the whole world, all nations. And we are each invited to follow and to serve and to represent this king as he extends God's good rule and God's blessings throughout the world. All right, so with that background, now we can get into some of the key details of Jesus' genealogy, and we discover more of what kind of king Jesus is. First, we discover that Jesus is God's king. He's not a chance arrival on the scene of history. Rather, God's hand has been steering history and has brought Jesus into the world at just the right time to be our rightful king. Have you ever heard the story about how your parents met and fell in love? And, and when you heard it, maybe you thought, what if they hadn't met? I wouldn't be here. The movie in the 80s, Back to the Future, has some fun with that theme. Uh, Marty McFly travels back in time to the 50s when his parents were teenagers. And he interferes with their lives just enough that they almost don't fall in love. And he's got a picture of his family in his pocket and... Um, as his parents fail again and again to connect with each other, he takes out the picture and he and his brothers and sisters are fading more and more from the picture, which adds some drama to the movie, as silly as it is. Well, Matthew is, is making this kind of point in a way by reciting this genealogy and even listing some of the women who are involved. If you know your Old Testament, then each one of these women reminds you of a story. And usually it's about a man and a woman and how they connected and had a child. And Matthew's reminding us that everything had to work out just as it did for Jesus to eventually come into the world as he did and for God to make sure it all happened. 
And it did work out that way because Jesus is God's king. Matthew makes this same point by listing 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the birth of Jesus. Now I need to point out here that Matthew had to leave out some generations to arrive at three sets of 14. If you go back and you check other genealogies in the Old Testament, you'll see that he did, he's done this. And leaving out some generations was a common thing to do in those genealogies for any number of reasons. But the point here is that Matthew has artistically shaped this genealogy in three sets of 14 to make a point. And the point is that God has been working all the while through history, sometimes dramatically, sometimes quietly, sometimes through powerful, famous people, more often through unlikely, humble people. We don't even know who some of those people are in the genealogy. But always God has been working faithfully toward the goal of, of bringing his great king into the world. Those promises that God had made to Abraham and to David come true right on time in Jesus. Jesus is God's king. But why three sets of 14? What's the point in these specific numbers? Is it because... If you convert the letters of David's name to their numerical values, which was something that the Jews liked to do, those values add up to 14. Or is it because ancient people like the Jews based their calendars on the moon and the phases of the moon, and there are 14 days as the moon waxes toward a full moon, corresponding to the rise of God's people from Abraham to David? And there are 14 days as the moon then wanes, corresponding to the decline of God's people from David to the exile. And then it begins to wax again, a final 14 days, corresponding to the rise again of God's people and God's work. From the exile to the coming of the great king, the son of David. Or is it because a 14 is two sevens and the number seven corresponds uh, or, or represents completion in Jewish thought. And, and then thinking of a weekly calendar, if each day is a seven, then three fourteens give us six sevens from God's promise to Abraham to the coming of the king who fulfills those promises. And under that king's reign, then we now enter a seventh and final seven, the culmination and the goal of history. Add to this the two opening words of Matthew's gospel. Biblos, Genesis. Biblos can mean book or record. Genesis can be translated birth or life or origin, or it can be translated generation or genealogy. This phrase, Biblos, Genesis, whatever it exactly means, not surprisingly first appears in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Among other places, this phrase introduces the story of God's creating Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So is Matthew now giving us a story about the beginning of a brand new creation on the seventh day of history? Well, regardless of how you want to see it, Matthew's point is clear. He has structured his genealogy to help us to see that Jesus is God's king. Long ago promised by God and now brought into the world at the fullness of time. Wow. But second, 
we discover in the details of this genealogy that Jesus is also our king. He's God's king and he's our king. Now to see this, I need you to view this genealogy with me as if we were Jews living in the time of Matthew. Matthew constructs his genealogy in such a way as to make it clear that Jesus identifies with us and with our history, that Jesus is one of us. I'll show you this in a minute. But first, it's important to realize that this move of, of identification and, and solidarity to, to step into our world and, and into our shoes is what this genealogy is getting at. And, and it reminds me of what happened in Denmark in 1940. In April of that year, German tanks swept into Denmark, quickly bringing that small, vulnerable country under German control. Soon after, the German command announced that every Dane of Jewish descent would be required to wear a yellow Star of David. This would allow the Germans to more easily mark out the Jews for intimidation and oppression and eventually death. And Jews who failed to comply would be put to death. Well, the Danish government could do little but comply, but their leader, King Christian X, took a bold and a potentially dangerous step. He called for every one of Denmark's citizens to wear the yellow star of David. Writer John Maxwell reflects, what would you have done had you been an uh, everyday citizen in Denmark in 1940? Tremendous fear must have gripped the hearts of those first Gentile citizens who ventured from their homes the morning after the king's announcement. Would they be the only ones who had heeded the call? Would they be singled out? Would they be scooped up along with the Jews and executed? Well, what they saw was nothing short of a miracle. There were stars of David everywhere. The Jews among them wept when they saw the people's love and support. And because the people stood together, the Nazis' full plan of persecution against the Jews was never carried out in that country. That solidarity, when one people says to another, we're with you, we're one of you. And that's just what Jesus, God's king, our king has done for us. Three features in Matthew's genealogy communicate this wonderful truth. Let me point them out. First, Matthew's genealogy is backwards. Kind of like if you picked up a high school grad's photo album and it started with their graduation and then it worked backwards through high school and middle school and childhood and it ended with their birth. Every Jew knew that you named a genealogy after an important ancient relative. And then you gave their descendants up to the present time. So, for example, the genealogy of Abraham began with Abraham. And then it went on that Abraham was the father of Jacob or Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob and so on. Well, Matthew begins with Abraham, but he doesn't title his genealogy Abraham's genealogy. He titles it Christ's, Jesus's genealogy. But Jesus' genealogy should start with Jesus and it should work forward through those who come after Jesus. But Matthew calls it Jesus's genealogy and then he goes back to Abraham and, and he recounts 
Abraham's and his descendants' history. He lists Jesus' past ancestors instead of his future descendants. Are you following me? This is backwards. Why? Why does Matthew write Jesus' genealogy in a way which every Jew knew was backwards? Answer, because Jesus is our king. He's one of us. He identifies with our history, with our story. As Matthew will make clear later in his feature article on Jesus, Jesus is stepping into the shoes of humanity and taking our place. We'll see later that this just isn't true for Jewish people, but it's true for all people, even for you and for me. The second feature of this genealogy which communicates that Jesus is our king. Notice the little touch that Matthew adds in verse 2 and then again in verse 11. Judah and his brothers and Jeconiah and his brothers and his brothers two times. These aren't throwaway phrases. There are no throwaway phrases in a genealogy. Everything is there for a reason. Judah and his brothers were the original 12. The sons of Israel from whom the 12 tribes of Israel were descended. For a Jew, invoking the memory of Judah and his brothers is like us telling the American story and invoking the names of the founding fathers. Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Franklin. In our case, this would make Jesus a truly all-American boy. In Jesus' case, it makes him truly one of God's people. And so as we read this genealogy, we realize Jesus is one of us. He's our king. Jeconiah and his brothers were those who went into exile. This was the darkest point in the history of God's people. When, when they suffered defeat and deportation, all of their hopes were dashed in darkness. Jesus shares that history too. Just like the Danes did with their Jewish compatriots. The best of times and the worst of times. Jesus stands with us in our darkest hour, in our deepest suffering. He's our man. He's our king. He's one of us. Finally, the third feature, and this is my favorite part. Notice again the four women in this genealogy. This genealogy was put together nearly 2,000 years ago before women's lib, back when it was a man's world. And it was rare and surprising to include a woman in a genealogy. But Matthew has included not one, not two, not three, but four women and these aren't the women you'd expect. They aren't the great matriarchs of Scripture, uh, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. No, they're four unlikely women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. These four women have two things in common. And this is where the good news of this genealogy really starts to grab us. First, all four of these women were involved in situations which were sexually questionable, to say the least. Tamar dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth climbed under the covers with Boaz at a party. And while nothing actually happened, the optics sure weren't good. 
And Bathsheba, well, she got pregnant by King David while she was still married to Uriah. Wow. I mean, it's surprising enough that Matthew includes women in his genealogy at all, but why does he, he pick out these four women to include? Because Jesus is our man. He's one of us. He's not afraid to identify with how we really are not just with how we should be. Jesus himself was born of a young woman whose baby came less than nine months after her wedding. And if you keep reading Matthew's story, he's careful to tell us that nothing wrong happened there. But he also wants us to know that God is not afraid to be associated with our weaknesses and our failings and our sin and our darkest moments. In fact, Jesus came to be king for just such women as Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, and even for you and me. I had a college friend whose dad used to teach at Virginia Episcopal Seminary near Washington, D.C., and one cold, snowy winter night, my, dad's friend, or my friend's dad, John Rogers, got a call from a bus station in the city. It was a young man who'd grown up in his church that... Uh, when Dr. Rogers had been the pastor, uh, the minister of this church years before, and this man had been in his church. He was even an altar boy. And this young man told Dr. Rogers on the phone that he had gotten into the drug culture and had lost touch with his family, and he was out of work, and he was out of money. And he wondered if Dr. Rogers, his former minister, could give him some help that night. Well, my friend's dad told the young man to stay right where he was and he jumped in the car and he drove through the snow into the city and he found the boy cold and emaciated and, and broken and he, and he took him home. And while the young man ate a warm supper, Rogers tried to get a sense of, of where he was at and he asked if the young guy had ever asked Jesus to help him with his troubles. And the young man said, no, it had been a long time since he'd even thought about those kind of things. And then the young guy brightened and he said, but you know, when I get myself together and I start coming back to church, I'm going to ask Christ to help me. And Dr. Rogers replied, no, no, it's never going to happen that way. If you think you've got to get yourself together on your own and then come to Jesus, you'll never do it. You're going to have to come to Jesus as, as you are right now at this moment. Then he'll give you the strength to start getting things together. And the good news is that Jesus isn't just a king for those who've already gotten their lives together. He's a king for you and me right now, just as he finds us. He welcomes you right now, just as you are. Bono, singer for the rock group U2, puts it this way. He says that the scriptures are brimful of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries used to shock me. He says now it's a source of great comfort. Jesus is our king. He's come for people just like us. The second thing that these four women have in common is that three, if not all four of them, were Gentiles. They were foreigners in Israel. They were outsiders to God's chosen people, not church folk. 
Tamar was from Adullam, a Gentile area. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. Incredible. A genealogy is all about belonging. If you can trace your roots back to Abraham and to David, you've got all the right credentials to belong. But these women had no credentials. They were on the outside looking in. They came from peoples who were enemies of God's people. Far it would seem from what God was doing in Israel. Yet Matthew points out that they are a part of Jesus' lineage. They are the king's own flesh and blood. Matthew's pointing out that God has always had a heart to embrace and to bring in those on the outside. And that Jesus, God's king, has come not just to be king of the Jews. He's come to be king of all of us. Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders, church folk and not church folk alike. He's our king. He's one of us. Jesus the Christ, God's king, our king, came into the world. And the well-known Christmas carol rejoices. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Will you receive him as your king? This Advent, will you prepare room for him in your heart? Let's pray. Math, uh, God, it must have just thrilled Matthew's heart to pen these words. And the words were loud and clear and compelling and joyous for a Jew in that day. And as, we, as we've peeled back the the crusty uh, layer of culture and history, we've begun to see afresh your heart and who this Jesus was that you've sent into the world. And I pray that you would help us to open our hearts to receive your king and that our lives would be transformed and that this world would be transformed as a result. <coughs> Amen.